You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Some people are just really kind and they, they genuinely want to help, which is interesting because with my personality, I love helping people. But when I'm doing social engineering, I'm kind of playing on their kindness, you know, using various deception tactics. It was kind of surprising sometimes how easy it was just to get in the building and people to let you in and let you on their networks and just start accessing things without knowing who you really were. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me as always is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. As always, we've got some interesting stories to share, and later in the show, we'll have Joe's interview with Stacy Cameron. She's from Direct Defense, and she's going to share her experiences as a physical pen tester. And we are back with some interesting stories this week. Joe, what do you got for us? This one comes from Itamar Schatz over at Effective Eology. I hope I'm saying his name right. Uh, he has an article about the Ben Franklin effect. All right. What, what is that? I know Certainly, I know who Ben Franklin is, but what is his effect? Right. It is the effect that asking someone to do you a favor will make them like you more, especially if that person feels neutral towards you or even has a little bit of animosity towards you hmm. or dislike. And the backstory for this comes from Franklin's autobiography. He had a rival legislator who harbored some animosity towards him. Right. And Ben Franklin found out that this guy had a book in his library, a rare book. So Ben Franklin asks this guy if he can borrow the copy of the book. Okay. And the guy obliges Ben Franklin. And a week later, Franklin returns the book with a note expressing gratitude for the lending of the book and saying how much he enjoyed the book. And then he found that the next time he talked to him, the guy was much more amenable. Hmm. Right? Right. That's interesting. So it's sort of a way to endear yourself to someone, a little bit of a roundabout way. Right. Exactly. And there were two studies that are in this article on effective eology that Itamar talks about here. And he says, one where the participants are asked to return money as a personal favor to one of the researchers, that the money is, the, is money they've received during the study. So, you know, as, as part of a study, they might reward people for money. Right. Sign up for this study and get $10 or $20. Right. Or well, yeah, but that's right. So at some point in time in the study, a researcher approached the subject and said, you know, it would really be a great favor to me if we could have this money back so we can do X, Y, or Z with it, right? Hmm. Maybe have more research, maybe do something else. But when they were asked that, people tended to rate the likability of the researcher higher than when they weren't asked. Hmm. Which is interesting. Yeah. There was a second study that found similar results for subjects who were asked to help with a puzzle. Hmm. And this makes me think of a personal friend of mine who is a fan of this kind of thing. He's a psychologist by training and he worked in uh, industrial psychology. Hmm. And I remember a time when Sudoku became a thing. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and he said, hey, there's a new puzzle. Come help me solve this puzzle. And I'm thinking about how much I like my friend Steve. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering if he was just saying, you know, I, maybe he was thinking Joe would like this puzzle, but it's not outside of the realm of possibility that Steve was going, let me see if I can get Joe to like me better. <laughs> right. Because that's, he thinks that way. And uh, not that there's anything wrong with this, because Steve and I actually, I think, have a, a healthy relationship. Okay. But what's going on here behind the scenes? Why is this, so, why is this effective? Right. This stems from our, our innate ability, I think, to want to help people. We are evolved as tribal 
creatures. When we see one of our own in need, we have this innate need to help them. Right. We have empathy. We have empathy and we get an emotional reward for doing something for somebody. But it turns out that emotional reward also carries with it the increase of the likability of somebody else. Hmm. So social engineers will use this to try to gain access, as usual, to things they shouldn't necessarily have access to. So they may come in and ask for a favor. I need to get in here. Can you help me out with this? And, right, right. and they may use it just to just to even as an icebreaker. Yeah, I'm hoping you can help me with this. I'm hoping you can help me with this. I'm looking for some information on a person. Once they've got the conversation going, they've already disarmed the person they're trying to talk to. And they're, they're starting to glean the information that they need to glean. No, it's interesting. Yeah, the Ben Franklin effect. I had not heard of that. I had not heard of it either until I read this article. It was a great article. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Definitely worth checking out. Moving on to my story this week. This is a story from the security folks at Flashpoint. This is from David Shear and Mike Mimoso. And the name of the article is Targeting Popular Job Recruitment Portals About More Than PII. Of course, PII is Personally Identifiable Information. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this, about how recruiting folks are targets because of the kinds of documents they have to deal with. Right. And HR folks as well. And anything with hiring people. Right. And so what this story highlights is that while, yes, that is true, there is a lot of that going on. There is another sort of fraud going on here where people, they'll either pretend to be a company that they're not, or Uh they may gain access to a company that they're not and post phony job offers on recruiting boards. Okay. So let's say I'm someone who is looking for a job. Let's go even farther and say I'm someone who's desperate for a job. Right. And I see this offer from a company that I know about. This is a a well-known company, a company with a good reputation. And so I apply for this job and what I think is applying to this uh, legitimate company. And they say to me, well, we're going to have you uh, do some work with some payment processing or handling merchandise things like that. Right. And it turns out what they're actually doing is, what the bad guys are doing is, they're setting these folks up to be basically mules to facilitate money laundering Hmm. or other cash transfers. And the mule has no idea that what they're up to is illicit. Right. And they think they're working for a legitimate company. Mm -hmm. But behind the scenes, the bad guys have set up this way to basically funnel the money through this unwitting person who just thought that they were applying for a job with a legitimate organization and they're passing the the money through, laundering that money for the bad guys. How are they doing that? I don't know all of the, the specific details. I know what generally happens is that the unwitting victim gets a percentage of the money that flows through. So they'll say to you, hey, you know, we're this legitimate company. You're going to be um, an independent contractor for us. And we have uh, people buying stuff. And here, what's going to happen is I need you to set up a bank account. And uh, people are going to buy these things. And, they're, and that money is going to go to your bank account. And then every month you're going to transfer everything you get minus 10% to this other bank account. So it kind of sounds like the Nigerian print scam. I mean, it's it's along the same lines, right. but basically, you know, they're adding a hop for the money to flow through. Right. They're make, yeah, I understand they're making the money harder to trace. And, exactly. And these people are actually getting 10%. Right. I wonder if these people are actually criminally liable. They may be. Well, I, I suspect technically they probably are. Right. I, I don't know. You know, if you sat them in front of a judge or a jury and they told the story. I didn't I, know that I was doing this for an illicit operation. They right. probably get off. Here's, here's how I was scammed. Here's all of the, you know. 
Yeah, but that doesn't stop the fact that they're probably going to get prosecuted for it or there's a good chance they could get prosecuted for it. Oh, yeah. No, no. That can make that alone can make your life miserable for a very long time. They are likely setting themselves up to have a very bad day. Right. And so uh, if you go to the article here from the folks at uh, Flashpoint, uh, they have some tips for HR organizations to protect themselves uh, against these sorts of things. I'm not going to list them all here, but it's something to look out for. And, And again, one of those social engineering things playing on someone's desperation, looking for a job, willing to do whatever it takes to make some money, right. and being fooled by what they think is a legitimate brand with a strong reputation. Yep. All right. So those are our stories. It's time to move on to our catch of the day. So Dave, we have a, an email from a listener who we will keep anonymous. <laughs> and the email reads like this. Having just listened to a recent podcast from you, I would like to share with you the time that I got human hacked. Mm-hmm. I was a part-time mid-career graduate student in computer science and happened to overhear a conversation between my professor and a couple other students. He described a company who had hired him as a consultant. He thought they were really onto something in that they had a way of getting multiple processors onto a chip such that each processor would only cost about 25 cents. This professor specialized in parallel processing. It was about 20 years ago. He described how the company was very nice to him and brought him to their facility, providing him with luxurious accommodations and so forth, and then sent him home. I then decided to invest some of my retirement savings in that company. Well, the company tanked, eventually becoming a penny stock and going away. At no time did any of their literature describe the microprocessor advance that they had made. My conclusion is that by whining and dining a number of academics, and then by signing them to NDAs that they knew would be violated, they ensured that there would be a market based on faulty reasons for evaluation of the stock. And of course, how can someone complain if they thought they may be guilty of violating an NDA or some other rule? Appeals to greed are all too common. Hmm, interesting. So let's unpack this. What's right. My favorite part, of course, is the part about signing people into non- non-disclosures that they knew would be violated. Right. <laughs> that, this is an interesting letter. I definitely think that whining and dining professors and having them sign NDAs they might violate is probably part of the psychological plan of this company. Hmm. I don't know where this occurred, but if this occurred in the US, then there are regulations about this. And one of the pieces of regulation is that you have to have documents that tell investors what your company does. Right. And falsifying those documents is punishable by large fines and possibly even prison sentences. So- Always read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's interesting. Sort of a this this notion of generating a whisper campaign. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a uh, intentionally planting a story. I don't doubt that that occurred, and I don't doubt that that was the intention. Yeah, and this person sort of uh, fell fell to it. Thought, oh. well, here I have some information that no one else has. Right, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to get in on the ground floor. And I'm going to be rich. And unfortunately for this listener, uh, it didn't happen. It didn't work out, right? I guess they learned a valuable lesson. Their stock was deemed worthless. Yeah. I've had a number of stocks deemed worthless. (laughs) Right. And when I invest early on. Yeah. Coming up next, we've got your interview with Stacey Cameron. So, Joe, you had an interesting interview this week. Who did you talk to? I spoke with Stacey Cameron, who works now for Direct Defense. And she and I used to work together, and she was a physical penetration tester for a company we used to work for. All right. It's interesting. Let's check it out. 
focused a lot on our social engineering with email phishing and customizing certain surveys and what have you for telephone phishing, um, as well as a lot of the physical penetration testing. So that was sort of the fun part, the uh, recon and the dressing up to be a different person. So I worked on that part. So when you were going to try to get somebody to do something for you, what was your process? A lot of times I'll look to see what was my target, right? And of course, this was all ethical. We had contracts signed, including get out of jail free cards if we did get caught. But um, I would have to see what the target was. So I would look into their environment. What are they susceptible to? I'm going into a building that I'm going to do some on-site reconnaissance, as well as some internet searching. Sometimes there are plans online. Sometimes there are security cameras, um, details online, just different ways to see how to get into the building. But I will tell you something. Sometimes I would have all these detailed research that I've done and all these plans of attacks. And when I get on site, I'll just see something else open up and I'll just walk through the door. So <laughs> my plan was just usually to see my particular artist and see how a target. Um, I can even tell how a chance when I didn't research didn't go to the best. And I went to a facility with all men. So <laughs> I didn't come prepared for that aspect. But yeah, pretty much figuring out which type of entity I'm working with and hitting some of their weak points. Um, a lot of things are online, even LinkedIn or social media sites. So you can always find a, a, a way in. But sometimes if I'm just walking into a building, I'll go in at lunchtime. They're going in and out a lot anyway. They're thinking about food. They'll just let anyone in. <laughs> so the first part was a lot of reconnaissance then. Yes. You know, which is standard issue for any practice. But once you got on site, did you use any tricks of the trade to talk to somebody to, you know, kind of manipulate them into doing something they probably weren't supposed to do? Yeah. So sometimes I kind of just sort of would, would see what the situation looked like. If if people were busy doing something else, then I'll kind of ask them questions to see, you know, if they don't want to be bothered, then they'll just let you in. Um, sometimes I'll pick up keys and say, I'm here returning something. I'll let you in the building. And sometimes I'll, some other tactics I would use griefs or you, you play on people's, their kindness. You know, there's, there is a lot of that still out there, but yeah, I'll come in and like, Hey, you know, just lost someone in the family. I'm just trying to get some work done or, or what have you. And then they, you know, they really don't want to bother you. They want to let you mourn. So um, a lot of different tactics I would go with back and forth, just depending on the situation. What was most challenging about getting into these facilities? What was the most difficult thing to do? In one case in particular, one of the things that was most difficult to do would be when I didn't have the chance to do some of the research on the facility. And let's say I picked um, dropping lunch off for an, an individual I and mean, I'll come in. And if it doesn't work, then the difficult part of that is I've sort of burned my face <laughs> and if there's no one else there, then you begin to look suspicious to continue coming up and pursuing methods. And so sometimes finding the angle of attack is sometimes difficult. Other times it's it's really easy and people just let you in. But usually places that are a little bit more vigilant in their security, sometimes there'll be folks there that are um, on alert. So just being crafty enough with your initial plan of attack. And was there anything that you ever found that you thought was just surprising? Just how, I won't say gullible, but I guess it is kind of gullible, but some people are just really kind and they, they genuinely want to help, which is interesting because with my personality, I love helping people. But when I'm doing social engineering, I'm kind of playing on their kindness, you know, using various deception tactics. It was kind of surprising sometimes how easy it was just to get in a building and people to let you in and let you on their networks and just start accessing things without knowing who you really were. And if you were to provide some advice to someone on how to avoid being fooled, what would your message be? What would be the take home that you'd give them? In everything you're doing, just sort of pay attention to what information you're giving out, because it's really easy just to get sucked into a conversation and just start wanting to divulge information 
But anytime you're giving out any type of information or giving access to something, just kind of just second guess yourself. Just ask a question. Why am I opening this door again? Or why am I letting you in? Why am I giving you a password? Why am I giving you my birthday? Or why am I telling you information about someone else? So just sort of kind of always ask yourself internally, why do I need to give this information? I mean, there are definitely cases that things are legitimate asked. For instance, someone to call you for a donation. It could be a, a charity that you donate with, but that's a really good social engineering tactic. Just sort of have a practice of things that you won't do. Just sort of know in advance. You know, if someone calls me, always, you know, go to your own source and, and, and call them back and they'll be fine with that. But sort of just knowing before you give out information, just sort of second guess yourself. Just ask, ask yourself a few questions. Just make sure why does this person need my information? Is there a safer way to provide it to them? Anytime someone initiates the conversation with you, then just sort of question those things. Always continue to keep yourself, you know, educated and educate those around you. If there are things that you don't want people to share about you, sometimes other people around you are susceptible to social engineering tactics. And people will use that. If you have a, a preference, she's like, hey, you know, with your family and friends, if someone wants my number, let them come directly to me. Or if you're not familiar with someone, I'm, you know, just sort of these things that are ever vigilant and all your due diligence within, especially when you're dealing with children or sometimes the elderly. I've seen a lot of cases with people will call them up and they're like, well, they have my phone number, so they must be a legitimate source. And it's not always the case. So just sort of educate those around you as well, um, especially those that have access to your information. All right, Stacy Cameron, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Wow, it's interesting stuff. I mean, uh, the story she has to tell, right? really fascinating. And, and to me, what, what uh, particularly I took away from it is the effectiveness of using that, uh, like we've talked about, that impulse that people have right. to want to help. Right. And she would use even mortality, right? You know, your own mortality right. as, as a way to get into places. She'd show up and, you know, she could emote very well, you know, be in tears and say, I have to talk to somebody about a person that just passed away. And how can you not help that when somebody comes in and is exhibiting these kind of emotions? Right. That is powerfully appealing, I believe. Yeah. That was a great interview. I really enjoyed talking to Stacy. Yeah, really interesting. And it struck me this impulse that we have to be helpful. You know, I decided a long time ago in my own life that I would rather be helpful and get burned every now and then than live my life a cynical person. Right. You know, that's the risk reward I'm willing to take. Right. I try to be helpful as well. I still maintain the cynicism, you know, <laughs> Right. Okay. and my cynicism comes in the state that, yeah, I'm going to get burned and I'm just going to be like, I'm going to take it and move on. So your cynicism is on the side of knowing that every now and then. Right. It's going to happen. I'm, I'm going to be helping somebody, but it, it is going to happen to me at some point in time. I'm probably going to get scammed somehow. Yeah. It's, but I think, yeah, yeah. I, I guess just for me, I'd, I'd rather continue being a helpful person and be okay with the fact that every now and then someone will get me rather than walking around with, with my defenses up all the time. Right. Uh, be careful, but not to the point where... I don't know. It's taking away from my humanity, my right. ability to interact with other people. Yeah. And generally speaking, that's a good idea. But when you're working in a secured environment, that's mm. when you have to put those feelings aside yeah. and not be willing to help people. No, you it's, know? You know, it's, it's an excellent point. It's an excellent point. You got to be able to dial it in. Right. And one of the things that she pointed out in this interview that was really good, if you can stop somebody from penetrating, she used the phrase, burn her face. Mm. Right. It doesn't mean something as horrible as it sounds. It means now, now that she's gone in, if she fails the first time attempting to go in, she can't try a second time because she'll be recognized. Right. 
And just stopping the attack the first time is the best option, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so you have to wait for a shift change with a security guard. Exactly. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Good stuff, Joe. Good stuff. And that's our show. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more about what they're up to at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.